We're going to start here tonight in the book of Acts. It may be a long time until we see the end of this because it is a lot of chapters in the book of Acts. Don't know if you know this or not, but Acts is the second longest book in the New Testament. So it could take us a little while to get through the whole thing. Let's just start off here by, by reading the, the uh, first couple of verses. The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began to do, to do and teach. Now, if you go over to the book of Luke, you're going to see that he wrote this also to this person. We're not exactly sure who this person is or if it is a person. If you look at the word, even if you don't know Greek, you can tell what this name means. Theo means what? Theology. We get our word theology from it. means the study of God. Uh, you all know what the word uh, phileo means. And basically, you put this all together, it is the friend of God. It could just be somebody in general that he's writing it to, or it could be somebody in particular. We really don't know, but we don't know who this person is. But he has taken the time, apparently, to write two very long books. And I'm told that actually in the original was one long scroll. That would be one long scroll, too, if both of these books are, are on there. But if you go over to the book of Luke and you look at the account that he has, how he, why he wrote it, you're going to find the reason why Luke decided to write down the accounts of Jesus and then the accounts of the church. And it's simply put this way. It seemed good to me. <laughs> it seemed good to me. Sometimes we get the idea that in order for us to do anything for God, he must come with angels, uh, fireworks, all sorts of things, you know, signs and wonders, stuff like that to, to come along. And here's Luke telling, you know, the reason he wrote the longest of the Gospels and the longest, uh, a long book in here in, in Acts is simply because it seemed good to me. It seemed good to me. There's a lot of things that we could be doing for God just because, first off, it seemed good to us. And Paul, we've talked about this before, but why did Paul go to the most of the places he went to? It seemed good to him. He didn't say it that way, but that's basically what it was. And until God said, no, don't go there, he went wherever it seemed good to go. Don't underestimate the leading that just comes from putting one foot in front of the other. Whatever seems good to you to do, go ahead and do it. How many times do we see that in the Word? Well, God says to him, whatever seems good to you, go ahead and do it. And uh, unless God gives you a stop sign, you're probably okay. Stay in touch with him. God gives you a stop sign and stop. Now, some people can't listen to the stop signs. They've uh, ignored them for too long, but most times we can, we can pretty much figure that out. So we see that he wrote this for that until the day in which he was taken up after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. How many have heard that Luke is a Gentile? I've heard that. In fact, for a while, I even uh, uh, bought into it, that Luke is a Gentile. And uh, it's been said, you know, that the Gentile wrote uh, a good bit of the New Testament and made the account of, of Jesus. The, uh, actually, when I started looking into this, some of the reasons for Luke being, a gent uh, being seen as a Gentile, number one, his name. His name is not Jewish. You know someone else who doesn't have a Jewish name? Paul. Is Paul Jewish? He sure was, wasn't he? He had a Roman name. 
I don't think anybody contested whether Paul was Jewish or not. But sometimes we get the idea that Luke was a Gentile. So we're going to look at some things about the author here, Luke. Up until this time, time of Jesus, when God had a message to bring the men, whom did he speak it through? Israel, Jewish people. Now, I'm not saying that God couldn't use anybody else, but if he did here, it would be the first time he has done it and he didn't say anything about it. If you go over to the book of Acts, just look up on the screen, Acts chapter 21. This is when they had a riot and Paul was uh, being dragged down to the streets. In verse 20, And when they heard it, they glorified the Lord and said unto him, Thou, oh, I did this in the King James. Wrong, uh, wrong translation. Thou seest, brother, how many thousands of Jews there are which believe in... Uh, let's, I'm, I'm pulling it up from the wrong one. Let me go up here on the other one. And when they heard it, they glorified the Lord, and they said to him, You see, brother... I got the wrong verse. Um, it might be the one before or after. Um, I'm not sure. Well, anyway, we're gonna, I'm going to summarize it. If you go back through, since I copied the wrong verse for it, if you go back on through right around this section of Scripture where, where uh, Luke is describing this riot. He is saying, he uses the word to describe the group that is there. Keith Spector looking it up for me. I appreciate that, sir. He says to the people that are there, uh, describing the people that are there, he uses the word us. That would mean Paul, Luke, and a few others. Luke was there. If you go down to verse... 26, then Paul took the men and the next day, purifying himself with them, entered into the temple to signify the accomplishment of the days of purification until that an end, uh, until that an offering should be offered for every one of them. And when the seven days were almost ended, the Jews, which were in Asia, when they saw him in the temple, stirred up the people and laid hands on him, crying out, men of Israel, help. This is the man that teacheth all men everywhere against the people and the law, and this place, and further brought Greeks also into the temple. They're upset because he brought Greeks into the temple. That would be non-Jews. Into the temple, again, I did this in the King James. I didn't realize that was in the, the thing. And has polluted the holy place, for they have seen before with him in the city Trophimus, an Ephesian, whom they supposed that Paul had brought into the temple. And all the city was moved, and the people ran together, and they took Paul and drew him out of the temple, and forthwith the, uh, uh, the doors were shut. He uses the word us, which means Luke was with the group. Of all the people that are in the group, they, say, they single out th this guy alone. No one else with him. Only this one as being a Greek that he brought into the temple. If they saw Luke as a non-Jew would they not have included him? So the people that are here for this riot are witnesses that they did not see Luke as a non-Jew. Is that a pretty good testimony? Luke is more than likely a Jew. Take a look at this in Luke chapter 1 and verse 8. And it came to pass, this is Luke's writing, Luke chapter 1, verse 8. And it came to pass that while he executed the priest's office before God in the order of his course, according to the custom of the priest's office. His lot was to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. And the whole multitude of the people were praying without at the time of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing, where? 
on the right side of the altar of incense. If you were a Gentile writing this, how would you describe it? An angel inside. But he does not. He has an intimate knowledge of the temple, how things are laid out, the furniture pieces. He even describes that this angel was on the right side, which means this. Luke was not there when this was happening. When it's being described to him, he can picture the entire thing. And when he says, he says, where was he standing? He was standing, oh, right there on the right side. Okay. And he sees the picture. When he goes to put this down, the picture is so vivid in Luke's mind that he tells you on what side of the altar the angel stood. Is that not a lot of detail? And when Zechariah saw him, he was troubled and, f- and fear fell upon him. And the angel said to him, fear not, Zechariah. So I, I, I skipped part of this. Um, go back up to verse And it came to pass that while he executed the priest's office before God in the order of his course, he understands there is an office and there is an order to the office. Is that something a Gentile would know? According to the custom of the priest's office, his lot was to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. He understands that of all the the priests that are there, there is a lot system, and his lot was picked during this time. These are this is a knowledge of the priest's office. He shows a knowledge of the insides of the temple. This is, this is probably not a Greek, probably not a, a, a non-Jew. And he goes on and talks about some of the other aspects of the execution of the office, which we can, um, we can skip on by. I don't think there was too much else that we needed to see from that. So we see that this includes detail that a Gentile would probably miss. Now here's a real interesting one. And this is with, uh, in Luke chapter 2. You're going to pull this up because I did not pull these into my, my notes. Luke chapter 2, we're going to go over here to the story of Mary. Did I not even give you the reference to it? Look at that. We didn't even give you the reference to it. Go up to Luke chapter 2. Let's just read the whole thing. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And the census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house of the lineage of David. To be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for, the, for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her first son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were greatly afraid. Again, this is Luke's writing. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace, goodwill toward men. So it was when the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. Now when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. 
And all those who heard it marveled at those things which were told to them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. Then the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, and it was told them. And when the eight days were completed for the circumcision of the child, his name was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Now when the days of of her purification according to the law of Moses were completed, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law, every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to an officer, a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves, and we can leave the rest of it off here. What I wanted you to see in in this passage, this is the most detailed account we have of the birth of Jesus surrounding the viewpoint of Mary. Of all the other Gospels, no one gives Mary's perspective like Luke does. No one gives the birth from the perspective of the mother like Luke does. And a couple of times he uses the phrase that she pondered these things in her heart. So you have to wonder, how does Luke find out what is in the heart of the mother of Jesus? It is not customary for a man just to have uh, take the audience of a woman. It is certainly not customary for a Gentile man to have the audience of a Jewish woman. But what was Luke's profession? He was a doctor. And tradition has it that along, not, not during this part of the time, but along the course of Mary's life, Luke became her doctor. And that during their times of the examinations of the different things they had to do for, for that is some... Uh, she became very acquainted with Luke and she passed on a lot of these things directly to him. And when he wrote them down, he's not writing them down as someone else who heard it from afar. He wrote it down as one who heard it directly. If you go through the Christmas account in Luke, go through with the mindset that this is the one who sat down with Mary and heard the words directly. still want to go over one more thing with you about Luke. So you get an idea of who this person is. There's a particular story. I already told you this one. His name is not Jewish, but then neither is Paul's. And he's not the only one. Uh, we'll, come, we'll hold off on that one. I'll come back to that in just a minute. I put this in the, the thing. You all know that there's one thing that just really bugs me. There's a few things, you know, that go on that, that probably don't mean anything to a whole lot of people, but they've just really bugged me. One is when a person gets up and talks about Paul writing Hebrews. That just irks me. To no end. It just, it just everything on the inside of me. I told you before, the only question in two years I questioned at Raymond was when the professor said, true or false, Paul said in the book of Hebrews, and I said false. I didn't care what the rest of it said. It was already false. And I actually confronted the guy on it. I said, you're wrong on this. And he says, no, I believe that he wrote the book of Hebrews. I said, that's perfectly fine that you believe that, but you can't put it in a true or false statement. True or false statements have to be fact, and you don't know that for a fact. That's your belief. Well, I didn't get anywhere on it, but... I made my point anyway. But one of the things that I've heard people say, and you probably have even heard some people that we've had as guest speakers, and I sat here and, and they'll say this, and I just kind of, because it just bugs me when they say this. How many have ever heard people say, Paul wrote three quarters of the New Testament? Oh, that irks me whenever somebody says that. Paul, people will say that Paul wrote more of the New Testament than anyone else. And that's a totally false statement. It's a statement that is completely fabricated. It's, it, it, and it, it's just because you look at it, and Paul wrote 13 books in the Bible. 13 books. 
some people count Hebrews, and that would make 14. I don't count Hebrews. I say 13. He had 13 books that are in the Bible. I got to count on these one, and I actually put this in your outline. No one wrote most of the New Testament. No one wrote most of the New Testament. No one. You'll understand that here in just a minute. There are about 138,000 words in the New Testament. 138,000 words in the New Testament. That's the count. The Gospel of Luke is the longest book of the New Testament. He doesn't have as many chapters as Matthew, but his chapters are longer. How many of you all know that as we're reading through Luke right now? <laughs> Those chapters are long. The Gospel of Luke has uh, 19,482 Greek words. Not English words. Greek words. 19,482. The book of Acts, the second longest book, has 18,451. You add them both together, you're going to come up with somewhere around 38,000 words that Luke penned. That number puts him 5,000 over the words of Paul. If even, even if you gave Paul the book of Hebrews, Luke still would have outwritten him by 500 words. If you gave him, and he didn't write Hebrews. I can prove that to you for a number of ways. But first of all, Paul's ministry was to who? The Gentiles. Who's the book of Hebrew written to? The Hebrews. And people want to say, well, Paul didn't, uh, Paul didn't put his name on it. That's why there's no name on the book of Hebrews, because they wouldn't have accepted it from Paul. What letter are you going to accept that's not written, but that isn't signed? They obviously knew who wrote it at the time. Now, here's another thing to have, have go along. Luke was Jesus' companion throughout all those years. He wrote things that he saw. He was also Paul's companion. He traveled with Paul. Several times, Paul mentions, no one, one time he actually said, no one is here with me except Luke. <laughs> Luke's here with me. Luke was a, a very good writer. We will probably never know until we get to heaven how many of Paul's letters Luke helped to write. If you were Paul, just thinking about Paul's personality, if you were Paul and you had a writer like Luke, would you utilize him? <laughs> Paul, I think, could uh, find better things to do with his time than sit down and write. If he could dictate it to, to Luke. So we don't even know how many of the words that are attributed to Paul were actually attributed to or written by Luke. They may have been. We don't know. But if you just take the, the ones that are written, Luke wrote more than Paul. Now, if Luke wrote 38,000 and he's the number one writer of words, that leaves 100,000 words still to go. That's why I say no one wrote most of it. No one person wrote half of it, let alone three quarters. Now don't get mad anytime you hear a preacher get up there and say that Paul wrote three quarters of the New Testament. They're just repeating something that they heard. They didn't go out there and, and do the research. My dad used to tell us this all the time growing up, Paul, that... Uh, Paul didn't write that much, so we had to head start on, on all that part of it. But these are the, the facts in it. Uh, I, put, I, I, I think I gave this to you already, but the two books contain about 5,000 more words than all of Paul's letters, which are 13. 
Now, there's one story in particular I wanted to pull you to, to really give you an idea of what uh, some things about Luke. Luke, as we said, Luke traveled with Jesus. We don't know exactly when he, he uh, got hooked up with Jesus' ministry, but we know that he was going through and he wrote down things that he saw that Jesus had done. And some of his accounts were very detailed compared to some of the uh, accounts we have from others. But I want to take you over to Luke chapter 24, verse 13. And behold, two of them went that same day to the village called Emmaus. This is the story of the road to Emmaus, which was from Jerusalem. And again, I did this in the King James. I didn't see that I was set over there. And they talked together of all these things which had happened. And it came to pass that while they, cons- they communed together in reason, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were holding that they should not know him. And he said unto them, What manner of conversations or communications are these that you are having to one another as you walk and are sad? And the one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answering, said unto him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? Do you not know the things which have come to pass here in these days? And he said unto them, What things? And they said unto him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, which was a prophet mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people. And how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and have crucified him. But we trusted that it would be that it had been he which would have redeemed Israel. And beside all this, today is the third day since these things were done. Yes, and certain women also of our, of our company made us astonished, which were early at the sepulcher. And when they, found not, they did not find his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels which said that he was alive. And certain of them which were with us went to the sepulcher and found it even so as the woman had said, but him they saw not. Then he said unto them, O fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And they drew nigh unto the village whether they went. And he made as though he would have gone further, but they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is far spent. And he went in to tarry with them, and it came past as he sat at meat with them. He took bread and blessed it and, bri- and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they knew him, and he vanished out of their sight. And they said to one another, Did not our heart burn within us while we talked with him, with us, by the way, and while he opened us, opened to us the scriptures? And they rose up the same hour and returned to Jerusalem and found the eleven gathered together and them that were with them. Now, I read that whole narrative for you this way, and I want to read it. This whole this event is recorded in one other gospel. One other gospel records this event. I want to read this to you. It's in Mark. Mark chapter 16. Mark, as you know, is a gospel that is dictated by Peter. It's actually Peter's gospel. Here it is in verse, uh, Mark 16, verse 12. After that, he appeared in another form to two of them as they walked and went into the country. And they went and told it to the rest, but they did not believe them either. Do you notice any stark differences between the two accounts? <laughs> you do, don't you? One has a fabulous amount of detail. Down to the conversations, down to the influxes that were going on between the people and, and things. And, and the other one is just, well, this is what happened. Now, we know there's two people that are going down the road. We know the name of one of them. We do not know the name of the second. Why don't we know the name of the second person? Because it doesn't tell us, does it? 
There are two suppositions as to who this is. One, if you go over to one of the accounts where uh, Jesus is on the cross, and you're going to find this same guy. Uh, uh, it, it's just His name is just spelled one letter different, but it's probably him. He's standing there next to his wife. There is a possibility that the second person on the road is with his wife. Remember in the story it says, stay with us. Could be at the house they were in with the husbands and wives. But another uh, way to look at this is when they were describing the people that came to them, they described uh, first off, the, uh, they decided some general group, but then they said the women among us. If you were a husband and wife walking together, if you were Cleopolis, Cleopas, would you describe with your wife there the women? Or would you just say those, some others that were among us? <laughs> I don't know, but I, I think that it, it, using language like that almost seems to indicate that it's two men that are there. If it is two men, and we have this incredible accounting of the detail in the Gospel of Luke, and no one else records it. Who do you suppose could be the second person? It could be Luke, couldn't it? He doesn't identify himself. Does Luke ever identify himself in any of the stories in the Gospel? And yet Luke is there. He never one time identifies himself. You go through the rest of the Gospels, you're going to find this out. No one else identifies Luke. Luke was there. Luke followed after Jesus. But no one ever identifies him. And Luke does not identify himself in his own Gospel. But Luke is the one who writes this story. No one else records this story outside of saying, well, two guys were on the road and appeared to him and they came and told us we didn't believe him. It would seem that one of the two guys who had a hard time believing... One of the two guys that said on the third day, when Jesus said on the third day I would rise, one of the two guys is very likely Luke. That's one of the questions when you get up to heaven you can ask. You can find out. Luke, was that you on the road? <laughs> two guys on the road to Emmaus. We have one of them identified. We don't have the other. I think it's astounding. If you identify one, why don't you identify the other guy? Of course, if you want to stay out of the story, you don't identify yourself. And Luke so far has kept himself out of the story. We're going to see that more in the book of Acts. So this is a little bit about who Luke is. Luke kind of just stays in the background. He doesn't like to put himself out there as to what he's doing. But he is someone that followed after Jesus, was not picked to be one of the 12, was not picked to be Judas's replacement, but he had followed after Jesus and had become one of the most helpful people in the ministry of Paul. He was an extremely instrumental man in the New Testament and wrote more of the New Testament than any one single person. This is Luke. Now go back over to Acts chapter 1. I'm going to pull it up there on the screen. Go back over to verse 3. To whom Jesus also presented himself alive after his suffering many, by many infallible proofs being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And he being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. Verse 5. 
For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They were still looking for the kingdom of God to be restored to Israel. They were still looking for the military uh, coming of Christ to rule over, to set his kingdom up, and to defeat their enemies. This is still what they're looking for. What had not been revealed yet was the age of the church, that that would come. They were not anticipating it. They were seeing the end of Daniel 70 weeks, and this is where they're at with this. So in verse 7, And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. When they asked him before about when these things would be, he gave the indication that he did not know. When he gives, and they ask him a similar question, after the resurrection, he says to them, go back to that over verse 7, It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. He does not deny knowing. How many times have you ever heard that Jesus is at the side of the throne? Is today the day? Is today the day? Is today the day? More than likely, Jesus knows exactly when the day is because Jesus is God. When he walked on this earth, he put down his deity. When he became resurrected, he picked it back up again. And when they ask him a question here, he does not answer it in the same way. He answers it very differently. It's not for you to know. It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. Verse 8. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria. Now right there, that is the outline we're going to see in the book of Acts. I believe it's chapters 1 through 7. We're going to see that the uh, apostles go through the uh, city of Jerusalem. In chapters 8 through 12, they're going to go through the, uh, the nation of Judea. And in the rest of the chapter, they're going to go through uh, Samaria and to the end of the earth. They're going to be spread out. Verse 9. Now when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into the heaven? This same Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. This is where he's coming back. The same way that he went up, he will come back. This is not describing when he comes back for the church. When he comes back for the church, he never comes on the earth. He meets us in the clouds. But when he comes back for the second advent, he comes to the earth. He will split this mount in two. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. And when they had entered, they went into the upper room where they were staying, Peter, James, John, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James. These are the rest of the disciples that were there with, with Jesus. And we're going to finish off on this note. Who are these other disciples? We've said before that three of them were significant. Remember, we're going through the uh, tribes of, of, of Israel. We looked at the way that they were all born. There was nothing that said they had to have 12, but they had 12. They had 12 in a not so very good way. They had 12 because they had concubines. They had 12 because they had multiple wives. There was competition among the wives and so forth. And that's where we got the 12 from. And most of the 12 uh, tribes of Israel became, they were basically useless. Only three became significant. And Judah became the most significant. But the rest of them really did not become very significant. We see the same, a similar pattern, not quite the same. 
with the disciples. With the disciples, 12 were picked, one matched for each of the tribes of Israel. But how many became significant? Three. However, the rest of them were not as insignificant as the tribes of Israel had become. We're going to see some things about that. So I got some history stuff here for you, just to read this over. Uh, very little of this is in Scripture. In fact, most of it is not. It's tradition. It's things that are passed on. Uh, number one in the list was Peter. Peter worked among the Jews before he eventually reached Rome, where he was, where he was traditionally the first bishop. Not really, just the really person over the church there. Uh, along with the Apostle Paul, he may have been executed around A.D. 64 during the persecutions of Emperor Nero or later on in A.D. 67. Apparently, he was crucified head down at his own request. Later traditions claim that, that uh, Peter in Rome was built over his grave. The uh, St. Peter in Rome was built over the grave of Peter. Don't know. It, uh, again, these are all uh, things that are tradition. I've heard it said many times that he was crucified upside down because he said he didn't... Uh, he was not worthy to be crucified in the same uh, position that Jesus Christ was. I don't know that the Romans would have listened to that. I have no reason to, to think that the Romans would have even honored that. They had a way for crucifying you, and that way brought death in a very slow process. Hanging you upside down would have negated a lot of the things that the crucifixion was about. So again, it's tradition. It's not necessarily fact, but more than likely he was crucified. Uh, I've already told you this. Mark's gospel is based on Peter's teaching. Peter wrote the first letter of Peter. Uh, some questioned the second letter of Peter, whether it was him or you know, somebody could have helped him write it as well. There are some apocryphal books that bear his name. Uh, but again, the authenticity is that we don't, we don't know. James, he is the son of Zebedee. He is a fisherman. During the persecution of Herod, Agrippa I, king of the Jews, in AD 44, the apostle James was beheaded. Uh, put to the sword in Acts chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Before his death, James the Greater, as he is known, uh, to distinguish from him from James, the son of Alphaeus, preached in Jerusalem and Judea, modern Israel. A later Spanish tradition is that James preached the gospel there sometime before his death. John, according to John's gospel, in uh, John chapter 19, verse 26 and 27, it is probably John who took Mary, the mother of Jesus, as his adopted mother. He preached in Jerusalem and later as bishop of Ephesus, south of Izmir in western Turkey, worked among the churches in Asia Minor during the reigns of either Emperor Nero or Domitian. In AD 81 through 96, he was banished to the nearby island of Patmos, now one of the Greek islands of the Aegean Sea. He was subsequently freed and died a natural death in Ephesus in A.D. 100. He was the oldest of the disciples. Tradition also has it that they tried to kill him, tried to boil him in oil, and it did not work. He came out alive. And that's why he got banished to the island. Of course, he's also the writer of the book of Revelation, one of the longer books in the New Testament. He also wrote the epistles of John. Andrew, the brother of Simon Peter, he was a fisherman. Andrew was originally a disciple of uh, John, John the Baptist. And after the death and resurrection of Jesus, claims are that Andrew preached in Achaia, southern Greece, and Scythia, the Ukraine and southern Russia. Andrew is a uh, patron saint of Russia and was crucified at Petras in Achaia. A latter tradition describes him as being crucified in a uh, uh, sort of an X position. 
hence the St. Andrew's Cross of Scotland. Have you ever seen the Cross of Scotland on the, the flag? I had some pictures. I was going to try and have them over here for you. But it's basically a blue flag with a white X on it. And they have a number of pictures of Andrew being crucified in a cross that was not done in a cross format, but in an X format. Uh, again, this is just tradition, and that's where they got those things from. So that was Andrew, the brother of, of Peter. He had taken the gospel to some places. We don't hear about him in the book of Acts, but it doesn't mean that he was not active. He was out there doing some things. Philip preached the gospel in Phrygia, West Central Turkey, before dying or being martyred there at Heropolis. The apostles should be distinguished from Philip the deacon or evangelist who preached to the people of Samaria and baptized the Ethiopian eunuch. Uh, Thomas, he may have labored for the gospel in Parthia. That's modern Iraq and Iran, ministry in that area. But stronger traditions link him with southern, southern India. Indian Christians from the west coast Kerala area claimed that they were evangelized by Thomas, who was later uh, speared to death by Madras on the east coast. Mount St. Thomas close to Madras is associated with his, with his name. There are some apocryphal writings that are associated with the name of Thomas and the Gospel of Thomas. Again, they were not canonized. Uh, they didn't... You all know what... Does anyone not know what, what was involved in the New Testament books that were canonized? I won't go over it if you all know about it. Anybody not know why they were, certain books were canonized and certain books weren't? A few of you? Okay. <laughs> the, the, the way that the books became canonized, they were canonized by man. They were canonized by the Catholic Church. They were canonized uh, basically this way. They looked at what books that were circulating were, had continued to be circulated and were most often read in the churches of the day. And those books that were read, those books that were used in the churches, those are the ones that they canonized and put into Scripture. And those ones that were kind of, that no one really read a whole lot, no one really got a whole lot of use out of them, they didn't canonize, canonize those. So when you have the Apocrypha books in the Catholic uh, Bible, they're actually taking books that their own church rejected as Scripture and then ascending them to the level of Scripture. Because in some Catholic church, they do uh, bring them back up to the level of Scripture. So the, uh, they just looked at who was using the books, what books ministered life to people, uh, and, and which ones did not. And that's how they were, were picked. It was a pretty simple process. I think they did a great job of getting it right. Uh, Bartholomew, we didn't go over him yet, right? The, the missionary work of Bartholomew is linked with Armenia, present-day Armenia, eastern Turkey, northern Iraq, northwestern Iran, and India. Other locations include Egypt, Arabia, Ethiopia, and Persia. That's a whole lot of area. Traditionally, he met his death by being flayed or skinned alive. And then beheaded. I mean, that's trying to make sure a guy is dead, I guess. Durban, north of present-day Baku on the Caspian Sea, may have been a, his place of martyrdom. Alternatively, he may have suffered his cruel fate in what is now India. So there's a couple of different uh, thoughts on Bartholomew, but apparently he was pretty active. Matthew, also known as Levi, the tax collector. Nothing definite is known of Matthew's career. After preaching in Judea, different traditions placed his missionary work and possible martyrdom in Ethiopia or Persia. The first gospel of the New Testament has from the earliest times been attributed to Matthew. 
there are some scholars who do dis uh, dispute that, but it's the, uh, the name we give it. When we get to heaven, I guess we can find out whether that was true or not. James, the son of Alphaeus, known as James the Less, to distinguish him from James the Greater, the son of Zebedee, but more likely because of his smaller stature than his relative importance. He and Jude following should not be confused with James and Jude or Judas, the brothers of Jesus. Most commentators treat them as separate sets of brothers. Most of Jesus, uh, all of Jesus' brothers and probably his sisters as well did not follow God during the days of Jesus. They didn't come to, to become saved until after Jesus died. His brother James did become fairly important in the church. Simon Zelotes. Simon is referred to both as a Canaanite, Canaanian, and the Zealot. The titles may refer to him being zealous or to his membership of one of the Jewish revolutionary movements known as the Zealots. Nothing else is known about him. So we don't got a whole lot about, the, about Simon. One tradition is that he first preached in Egypt before become, uh, joining Jude and traveling to Persia, where both were martyred. Simon may have been crucified or hacked to death. Judas, the brother of James, also Thaddeus. Judas is also confused in some sources with Jude, one of the brothers of Jesus. He may have preached in Assyria, eastern Iraq, and Persia, which is Iran, before joining with Simon the Zealot and being killed with him in Persia. So anyway, these are the uh, 11 disciples. And when we saw Luke's account of the two guys on the road to Emmaus, you remember when they uh, left or figured, oh, this is Jesus. And they went to the 11, which tells us the two people that were on the road to Emmaus were not the 12, any of the 12 disciples. Or at that count, 11, because Judas was dead. They were people that were non uh, not the 12 disciples. There were other disciples. There had many disciples Jesus had, but not all of them were uh, the, the 12 that he had picked. And they were apparently not on the, the road there. I put this in your outline for you to, to write down here at the end. In the end, it is not who remembers you, but did you accomplish what God commissioned you to do? When we go through and look at the 12 disciples that Jesus picked, one became a martyr, three became very significant, and the rest of them we didn't really hear too much about. But there are traditions, there are things that tell us that they did accomplish things, they did do some things, they were out there busy with uh, the things of God, but not necessarily does anybody remember what it was that they did. It's not so important who remembers you when you're gone. It is important that you do what God commissioned you to do while you were here. Because all that's going to matter is when we get to the other side. It's not how many remember us down on this side. But what does our Father say about us on that side? And for some of us, we may have some things that are considered to be less significant. We may not have a calling that would put us into place like a Peter or a James or a John or a Paul or a Barnabas or someone who in the book of Acts becomes very prominent throughout it. But throughout the book of Acts, there are also many people who help many things. Paul didn't pull off all those meetings by himself. He had help. Jesus didn't pull off all his meetings by himself. He had help. All, all these folks that had people that, that helped him out. Timothy didn't turn around the city of Ephesus on his own. He had other people who were there ministering with him. And all teamed up together, pulled that thing off and, and got those things going. It's not so important who remembers you down here on this earth. What's important is when we get to heaven, did we accomplish what we were supposed to do? 
As we go through the book of Acts, we're going to look at some, some uh, very mighty men, very, very mighty women of God. We're going to look at some that uh, maybe just get a passing mention here and there. And there's going to be a whole lot of people that were in that day and did some very significant things. And we're not going to hear their names at all. It's not important who down here remembers you. It's important that we do what God has called us to do. It's so easy for us to get into a mode of comparison where we take our life and we compare it to, well, I'm not a Paul. I'm not a Peter. Look at the things that they're doing. Oh, I wish I could do something. No, what has God called you to do? Because whatever God has called you to do, he needs you to do it. And did you do that to the satisfaction of the Father? It's so easy for us to get caught up in being recognized by men, recognized and remembered by the people that are on this earth. Let's not lose sight of the most important thing. We want God to say, when we get on the other side, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into your rest. That's really all that matters. So we look through the book of Acts here. It's not important that we meet the comparison to some of the people that are in here. Because the only comparison we're going to have is what we were supposed to be compared to what we became. What we were supposed to do with what we had. And you, Jesus gives out that parable of the parable of the talents. One had five, one had two, one had one. He never compared them together. He compared them with what they were supposed to do with what they had. That's the most important thing that we can do. Father, we thank you for the book of Acts. We know it's just the start of the things that were done in the church. And Father, we are to finish those things and we're to keep them going. You have called some of us to be maybe more in the forefront, some of us to be more in the background, some of us to be more support, some of us to be more out taking on some of the weight, some of the attention. But no matter what it is that we're called to, none of it is insignificant. All of it is important. Father, we thank you for the help that you give us. Get these things done to do what we need to do for your kingdom. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.